0: Log Talk Radio it's the greatest sale in history at Ashley Home Store. Shop early for Black Friday deals you won't find anywhere
1: else. Save up to 50% on styles you'll love. Or shop our biggest doorbuster deals like fabulous beds, cozy sofas, and great recliners. Or get five years no interest, no money down, no
0: minimum purchase on Black Friday deals starting at just $4.49. And don't forget about our unbelievable
1: smart buys. Hurry in for Black Friday deals while supplies last. Only at Ashley Home Store. This is home. Offer subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payment required. See store for details blog talk radio welcome to the parenting aces radio show on blog talk radios you are tennis network i'm your host lisa stone and we are going to have another amazing conversation with john falbo today i'm so excited to have him back on the show and uh Every day I get excited to see what news stories John is sharing on his Facebook page and I take notes and make sure I jot down the ones that I want to ask him about once I get him back on the show and today's no different. So I'm not going to waste time talking about anything else. I'm just going to bring John on the line and let him start storytelling for you guys so that we can all benefit from this amazing guy's life experiences. John, thanks so much for doing the show again. Oh,
0: thank you for having me, Lisa. I'm I'm ready to roll.
1: Awesome. Well, you've been sharing some really intriguing stuff on your Facebook page, and so... I don't even know where to start, but um, maybe let's start with an Atlanta connection if that's okay. One of the stories okay. that you posted was about a player party that, <laughs> that you played at um, that Patricia Jensen asked you to perform it, and uh, I believe Luke was there. And the Atlanta connection for – my listeners who may not know this there are a couple connections actually um one patricia jensen now lives in atlanta and does the the ball kids for the bbnt atlanta open every year um, she whenever anybody needs ball kids trained and organized for any type of event here they go to patricia and she makes it happen which is so cool And her daughter, Rebecca, was actually my ALTA team coach before I moved. And so I got to know Rebecca really well. And, yeah, we've gotten to be friends, and she's awesome, as I'm sure you can imagine. And uh, so that's the Atlanta connection. But I want you to talk about this party that you performed at that seemed to really make an impact on the people that were present. So I'm going to just have to jump right <laughs> into that story. Well, sure.
0: And, you know, you mentioned Rebecca being your coach, and I don't know how many people know this, but she she won the NCAA championships in doubles when she was I, – I live in Lawrence, Kansas, at KU, you know, about six blocks from the university because that's where I was an All-American and played. But she, she came about four or five years later, and won a, a doubles championship in the NCAAs. So she was she was an All-American here and an NCAA champion. And I watched well, she and Rachel, her twin, grow up, and <clears throat> I always knew they were going to be very, very good because they were watching Luke and Murph. you know?
1: Exactly. I was going to say the doubles thing is in the genes, and... For me it was awesome having Rebecca as a coach cuz we're both lefties and it's not often oh, that nice. I've had the opportunity to have a coach that was also a lefty and could teach me some some lefty ways. So that was I, always didn't, know, really I
0: fun. didn't know you were a lefty too that's that's cool that's yeah. very cool. Yeah and and you know Pat has been to give you an idea how long, she, you probably know this, but to give you your listeners and, and the entire audience a chance to know how long she's been in the game, I remember being 12 years old and Mrs. Jensen had this van and it really was almost like a cargo van, if you can imagine that. And there was, I mean, the seating was, you, you may as well have had like a, a steel softball viewing bench in the back of it, and there was no, there was no padding, there was no nothing. And Murph and I had just played in the National Indoors in Chicago, and we were riding back to uh, Grand Rapids in this van, and it was like probably midnight. And Miss Jensen's up in the front; she's jamming the music. You know, bumpity bump, 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 going 70 miles an hour in a basically a steel clad uh, cargo van, right? And within, within days, we were headed to, there used to be, McEnroe used to do an exhibition tour with Guillermo Vilas and the Argentinian great. And it was one of the most successful exhibition tours uh, at that point in history in terms of finances and attendance and things like that. And so Mrs. Jensen was always involved with the promotion of these kind of things. Uh, Luke would play beforehand, you know, in an exhibition like with Patrick McEnroe or with some people who were local there. And we got to watch all of this. We got to go to the matches. We got to view. We got to help with the different intricacies of the preparation, and she's just been in the game. I don't know how many people know how long she's been in the game. I mean, she's 30 to, you know, three to four decades, 30 to 40 years in the game. And for sure. Kind
1: of, and, and you yeah. lived with them for a bit, right? That was your connection?
0: Yeah. yeah we lived together at uh, in Grand Rapids at what was called the Mid-American Tennis Academy. It was a fellow by the name of Don Dickinson who moved out to Tucson. He's at the El Conquistador, last I knew in, in Tucson, and he ran what was called the Copper Bowl for the juniors. I believe turned in to the Winter Nationals.
1: Right. And
0: so he and yeah, he was he went on uh, eventually to the El Conquistador, ran their programs and then ran the Copper Bowl, et cetera, et cetera. But before that we were in Michigan with him. And in one room it was Luke and myself and then Murph came full-time about six months later. So to live there, and to, Luke was my roommate for almost a year, and he was almost 16 and I was 12. And he taught me so much. He taught me how to string rackets. He taught me footwear. thing. He taught me what to carry in my bag. He taught me so much because the guy worked incredibly hard every day. And every... Every weekend, Mrs. Jensen would come up, and she'd sit in the room with us, and we'd talk, you know, we'd talk, hey, what's it going to take? What's it going to take to go to the next level? What's it going to take you know, breaking the thing down? Like, hey, this is not really that complicated. You've got to go out. You've got to hit a ton of balls. You've got to play tournaments. You've got to compete hard. And most importantly, you got to want it. And on the weekends that she would come and then go back to Ludington, which is where they were from, I would actually go back with them and stay at their house. And their dad, Howard, I believe he played for the Giants, New York Giants, um, in football. And we would do some, some what people now would consider outlandish things. We'd go back for the weekend, and it would be snowing, and we'd be running three, four miles in the snow, you know, and be going and doing – they had a court in their backyard – and we'd be doing all kinds of drills. We'd be doing all kinds of just constantly talking tennis, exercising. Um, it, was, it was their life. And I learned that if I wanted to be good, it had to be my life, too. It had to be a lifestyle. It wasn't like go hit some balls and get good. It was like immerse yourself in the lifestyle. And the thing I respect most about Pat and the whole family, they were never afraid to immerse themselves in the lifestyle they are tennis people through and through and if you know Rebecca like you do you'll know she's she's tennis through and through and it's in their blood and I feel like it's in my blood too so when you meet a kindred spirit like that um, it's pretty hard not to respect them you know
1: absolutely and I I totally get what you're saying I, I tease my husband that when I go to these college tennis matches, I feel like I'm with my people, <laughs> and he laughs at me. But, but it's truly how I mean. It's it's what you're saying. You know, it's the kindred spirit. You just you're with people that get it, that love it the way you love it, that understand the, the level of commitment that it takes. And uh, I think that's you know it's crucial. And I it's interesting, and and I'd love to hear your commentary on this group of young professional players that we've got competing for the US right now um, and the fact that they are coming through as a group much like the group you were part of you know and how important yeah. that is to have that camaraderie
0: Yeah it's a great it's a great question and and the what I was going to say before I address that too about I've been looking forward to for a month, Since we did our last show, I've been looking forward every day to talking with you for the simple reason that you just stated, because I know you love the game, I know I love the game, and we connect like that. And there's just, there's no, like, there's no substitute for that kind of enthusiasm, you know? Um, Absolutely. And as far as the group coming through just this past weekend, do you remember uh, a player, she was top 10 in the world, her name is Marianne Wardell? Yes, she works. She works as a, I believe, the title is a performance coach out in San Diego for the USTA now. Uh, But she went to Stanford. She was top ten in the world in the women on the women's pro tour. She was an amazing player, and she and I knew one another growing up, uh, and we've reconnected on Facebook since you know I guess the summertime, and she hit. Probably once or twice a week with a coach named Woody Blocker. Now the the backstory with Woody is I, if you've seen a couple of my posts, I trained with Woody uh, when I was 15, 16, and 17. I think within a two week span, he saw me beat three eventual world number ones. So he he helped me yeah he helped me enormously. Uh, he was he was there. He was in the front row when we won Kalamazoo. He he contributed so much to me. To Marianne, if it's not for Woody, everyone gives Jose Higuera's credit, which was deserved for Michael Chang's French Open win in 1989, and very deserved. But I'm here to tell you, if it's not for Woody Blocker, Michael Chang doesn't win the French Open in 1989 because – from the time the Changs started working with Woody in, say, 1986 through that period, uh, Michael made vast improvements. He won Kalamazoo in the 18s as a 16-year-old and, while he was with Woody. And Woody is just a tremendous tactician. He, he knows the game. He won the Orange Bowl himself in the era of Dick Stockton and Eddie Dibbs and Harold Solomon um, right before the Borg era. And so he's been in the game forever. Uh, He knows the game. Now, the reason I bring him up is because he's worked with Taylor Fritz since Taylor Fritz was like eight or nine years old. And a lot of people don't promote Woody. Woody's, Woody's his own man. He says what he thinks. He never holds back. He's not politically correct. But he's a gem of a man. He's a gem of a soul. And so Marianne, I hadn't talked to Woody in several years, and Marianne Wardell hooked us up on on Facebook and also through text messaging. And I just talked to him over the weekend, and we were talking about Taylor Fritz. And we were talking about the very question you just asked about this crop coming through. And he made the comment, he said, he was like, look, you know, it's not – you can never say that there will be another generation that's going to win almost 30 grand slam titles. You cannot say that. But what you can say is it's the it's definitely the best crop that's come up in a long time. And so you've got them competing against one another, and you've got them kind of watching. You know, everybody's watching what the other one's doing. Everybody's being pushed that way. And... I don't really consider, like, I don't consider the guys that are 24 and beyond. I don't consider Jack Sock and these different guys a part of that group. I consider the guys from 16 to, like, 20, 21, because the truth of the matter is Sock might go on, and he may win a grand slam or more than one. He's very capable, and he's a tremendous player. But the fact of the matter, and it's tremendous, he's take nothing away from the guy. He's worked his butt off and he's a great player, but by 24 years old, if you go back and look at Pete, and you go back and look at Andre, and you go back and look at Michael, and Jim, all the guys, by 24, it wasn't a question that they were going to be in the Hall of Fame. You know, from from their ages of 16, 17, 18, to 21, 22, 23, there were Grand Slams being won. There were world number one. There were world champions being won, world championships. So I think mm-hmm. I don't really include that kind of group. And Steve Johnson is another one, like tremendous college career, tremendous player, uh, very, very skilled guys that are going to make a lot of money and are going to win a lot of matches. But, but we, as long as you don't categorize them with the greatest ever, then we're good. You know, and we're good because they're fantastic players. They've done really well, but they're in their mid twenties, mid to late twenties, in some cases. So the group that's coming up that's breaking through, like with Taylor going, getting to the finals of uh, Memphis and losing to Nishikori, you know, he's he's busted through. You look at the ascent of his ranking, and it it tells you a lot if he stays healthy. And like Woody was saying, you never know. This, it's a crazy game, especially when you get to be a pro because you got all kinds of people gnawing at you and pulling at you and whispering in your ear what's best, etc. Things hold reasonably true. I think you hit it on the money, Lisa. I think, I think this group has as good a chance as any group I've seen to really make a mark, what? and that means winning Grand Slams.
1: Why do you think all of a sudden, after such a drought, and especially on the men's side, that this group of young people has been able to reach this level? What do you think happened?
0: Well, I think it's probably a combination of things. I think you've had guys like Woody in the trenches for 10 years. You know, literally, like that nobody knew about. Mm-hmm. So it seems mm-hmm. overnight that some of the guys. But you've had different coaches, that are many times they're not part of the USTA. They're they're running their own operations. They're in the trenches. Nobody's really noticing them. They're putting a lot of free time in. You know that they're not getting paid for, uh, and that's kind of the overlooked uh, ingredient. Is you have parents, coaches. You have you have these teams of people that are really doing thankless work for eight to 10 years. Nobody really knows about it. They're contributing to the development of the child as well as the player. And I think that's what you're seeing. I think you're seeing a result of several years of work. And I, I think it sinks in any competitor when you're hearing like McEnroe on TV saying how bad American tennis is. And I, like the, the head, the GM of player development is named Martin Blackman. Now, Martin is an unbelievable competitor. We would, we would have matches on the back courts at Bolateri's, and he and Andre, myself, David Wheaton, we'd be going at it for three and four and five hours. He's an unbelievable competitor. He was—he broke through even before Andre or I, junior-wise and pro-wise. You know, he won—he qualified and won a first-round match in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Tour event when he was 15. So, wow. he He's a tremendous. Yeah, he's a tremendous competitor. So, if you think he's not sitting at home, and he hears McEnroe or he hears somebody else arrogantly say, you know, U.S. tennis sucks or this and this and this, and you don't think that lights a fire under him? And then you think you have guys like Woody and different independent coaches that are hearing this and being flogged on a yearly basis, That how, how much better Europe is, and, and which, factually, they have dominated. That's a fact. But I think there's a resurgence not only in American tennis, but in the American spirit in general. I think you're seeing it in lots of different ways. I think this is part of it. I think you've got a group of four, five, six guys that have had uh, strong, strong parenting from at least one or both parents, which is essential because if you look at the great players, they had at least one very strong-willed parent. Because you don't, you don't do this what, thing without. What do you
1: mean by that? Can you? Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Because, you know, we hear that, um, but at the same time, we hear tennis parents are a pain in the ass and nobody wants to deal with us.
0: So what do you you mean? Well, the best coaches, to me, understand that a strong-willed parent will back their child up at the same time as working with the coach and when you take a parent like Mr. Agassi and you take a parent like Mr. Sampras, Mr. Sampras was incredibly strong. This guy was he was an engineer, he owned a Greek restaurant, he was an entrepreneur. He was soft spoken, but he was unbelievably strong. Mr. and Mrs. Chang, incredibly strong-willed parents. You know, Mrs. Courier, there every single match, every single match and working, she she couldn't hit the ball that great. She could feed Jim. She could toss balls So She was down to do whatever. Mrs. Jensen, incredibly strong. She and Howard, very strong. And so you see some of the guys that in their are in their mid twenties now that are Americans, mid twenties, early thirties. And there's there's there, a lot of them are nice people. Some are not so nice people. But the strength is reasonable, but I don't know that it's the type that you can grow up with and be like, look, this guy's going to be in the world or one of the best in the world. Because when you get out there and you're performing, sometimes it's the loneliest feeling in the entire world, the loneliest. And if you don't know, if you don't know that you have someone who's so dear to you that's going to have your back no matter what, There's a breaking point for everybody mentally, and when you get out there, when you're Luke and you look over and you see Pat sitting there, Pat's not breaking for anybody, and that that translates over. My dad, whenever I would look over and see my father, I would feel uh, I would feel instant surge of energy. You know, whenever Andre would look up at his dad, he would feel instant surge of energy. Now, are they tough? Are they difficult? Yeah, they're difficult because they like to get stuff done. And you're not just going to sit around and and go according to the crowd like lemmings if you want to get stuff done. So are they difficult and a pain in the ass? Yeah, I agree with what you said. But the upside is, look, when we're in difficult situations and stuff's on the line, we need people in back of us that are not only going to push us, but that are going to stand up for us and believe in us and and to answer your question i think this crop i think there's some very you know you don't know about them right now you will as these as these guys do better and better but i think there are some very strong-willed personalities behind this younger crop of guys if that answers your question
1: interesting yeah it does i i you know i think it's it's been fun to watch i know a couple of the kids, you know, not really well, but I know them and know the parents and have interviewed the parents. And uh, I'll have to like, put my thinking cap on about what you said about the strong parents. I think that's a very interesting way to look at this and kind of debunks that whole thing of you know parents stay out of the oh, way yeah. if you want your kids to do well. For
0: instance, if I could give two examples, if you'll permit me, uh, of course, Uncle Tony, uh, Uncle Tony with Rafael Nadal, Uncle Tony's a savage. <laughs> if, if, if you if you know Uncle Tony, he was like the one of the very best soccer players in Europe. Um, he he comes from in terms of athletic lineage. This guy's a savage. He competed like he was known as one of the most fierce competitors in Europe. And so, you know, when Ruff is out there and he's, he's thinking about giving up or he's thinking about going soft and not playing every single point as hard as he can, he looks over and sees Uncle Tony. Is like, hey, that guy could have never hit a tennis ball in his life. <clears throat> Excuse me. But he knows athletics. He knows what it takes to win. And it's not a tea party out there. It's, it's you know, one time uh, when Andre and I were playing down at Knicks, he called us to the net. And he said, look, guys, this is a street fight. You guys are whining and complaining about balls you're missing or you don't feel good or you don't, you know, maybe you're not really feeling it today. If we were in a street fight, you'd be dead. Mm -hmm. And you you don't have the sense of urgency that it takes right now to say, look, I'm hungry for every point. For every single ball, for every possession. And that takes a certain amount of toughness. And if you're looking at it like like one of Pete's famous comments is when I play the guy, I feel like he's trying to take food off my plate. And I feel I'm hungry and you're trying to take my food. So what's gonna be my what's gonna be my natural response? It's gonna be a bit primal, you know? Like, look, let's get after it. If we got to grind, if it's got to be ugly, if we got to make an extra ball, you know, if we got to come in when we're a little uncomfortable, whatever we got to do. But if it's a street fight out there, then it's definitely not a tea party. And I think with these strong-willed parents or coaches or brothers, or you have you have to get very raw out there at the highest level. And it's kind of, you're kind of naked because when you get raw and you get kind of savage or primal, you know, you're looking around and a lot of people might be like, wow, that's, that wasn't pretty.
1: <laughs>
0: that that was That was a little rough. That was a little too true for the moment. That wasn't like, you know, happy-go-lucky. And you have to know that the people behind you are going to be like, look, we got your back. We believe in you. Do it how you need to do it. However tough you have to get, you get tough. And not just as a saying, you know, like mentally tough or mental tough. No, you get down and you get dirty when you need to. And you scrap for every point. And that's really the beauty of the game. And if you, you know, you had asked, well, why why hasn't kind of the the implied question that you asked is how come there hasn't been anybody really and the answer is the guys that have won grand slams and world championships know how to get dirty with the best of them they know how to get their hands dirty i don't mean they know how to cheat i mean they know how to get their hands dirty they know how to really put the work in and when stuff's on the line they're not they're not submitting at all they're going every point they're enduring and they're playing the other the other example i was going to put forth was i was down i think it was 90 91 might have been 92 1992 and jennifer capriati lived at saddlebrook pretty much since she was a mid teen they bought a house there she trained there with tommy thompson and alva Corps and she trained every day there sometimes harder than others but this was when she was going through her if you remember she had a a lull of a few years where
1: mm-hmm. it was
0: three to five years where they weren't even sure she was going to play again. Now, if you were down there, you knew she was going to play again because she'd come on the courts with her two dogs and her dad and her hitting partner. And then she'd go for a run. And sometimes they'd hit 10 minutes and sometimes they'd hit now in 10 minutes. But I was watch- so I was just sitting at the fence watching after a workout and they were working out, and of course her dad's there, and everybody gave her dad I mean they tried to bury her dad, if you remember, and he was a good Italian man, he was a strong willed Italian man, but he was always good to her, and he always had her best interests at heart, and they tried to they tried to bury him and blame him for her her difficulties, and that was a way to divert. From maybe a couple of the agents, that was a way to divert from maybe a couple of the trainers and a couple of the people that really should have been looking out a little better. But in between, in between, uh, they would take a break. They would take breaks every probably ten, fifteen minutes, so she could get a drink, and he'd throw the the balls, tennis balls to the dogs, and he'd come over to the fence and we'd talk a little bit. And I was like, you know this is really far from over and he'd smile real big and he'd be like, I know he you know, he'd have his accent. I know it's a very, very far from over. It's just Jennifer needs to know it's very far from over. I know it's far from over. I know she can be the best in the world. I just have to be patient and let her come to realize it. And this is a guy that stuck with it for 10, 15, 20 years and if you remember, when she came back, she was the only player, really, that could beat consistently Venus and or Serena because she was so good from the ground from her training with Rick Macy. So good from mm-hmm. the ground. And he would, you know, constantly, he was on the court every day. And when she looked over, with any less willed of a parent. She gives up and she had plenty of money, so she just goes and rides off into the sunset. But every time she looked over at him, she knew he was thinking. She knew he believed in her. He might have been the only one at that point. I knew she could, I I believed in her. You know, in terms of in her mind, who the most important people were, he might have been the only one in her mind that truly believed in her. And so every time she'd look over, she'd be like, hey, this guy believes in me. I might be a little screwed up right now, but I know he thinks I can do it. And I know he wants me to do it. And I know he believes in me. And, and, and if anyone thinks, that's not huge in terms of, you know, her ascent back and her overcoming her difficulties. If he wasn't as strong-willed as he was, there's no way she comes back. And there's no way she's ever as good as she was.
1: It's such a, a interesting dilemma as a parent to know how much to push when to step back and and I we talked about this, you know, one of our previous chats with you and your son and and his chess playing and that fine line that we all walk as the parent of this talented hard-working, committed, young person. And uh, it's, I, I'm not sure there's a, an, you know, one answer to the question of, you know, how, where's the line? How do you know when you're getting too close to it? Or God forbid you're stepping over it. And uh, I think it's something that all parents must struggle with. I, I can imagine.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And, and, you know, several thoughts come to mind. Like if I'm a coach or I'm someone helping your child, you in particular, and I see what a good soul you are, and I see you're disturbed about something, like, you know, your son or daughter is not giving their best effort, you know. I ask myself, well, are you beating them? Are you hitting them? Are you physically abusive to them? And the answer is, of course, no. And then I say, well, are you emotionally or psychologically abusive to them? And the answer is no. When I see a good soul, I have to be able to judge, as a, just as a human being, like, look, this person is not harming this child. Now, are they pushing them? Yeah, I mean, those definitions have changed over time. When, when my dad in the 19, 1920s, if he stepped out of line, like I see some children step out of line and tried to, like, run the household, he would have gotten swatted in the next week, you know? He would have literally sure. gotten either punched or spanked. It wouldn't have been a spanking. It would have been a stern, like, you know, whack. Mm-hmm. And so these, these definitions change over time. And to me, you've got to be able to determine and differentiate, like, look, is this, is this parent harming are they physically or mentally in any way abusive? If they're not, pretty simple to determine. That's a pretty extreme thing to determine. If they're not, then it comes down to, okay, what level are you going to push? And I don't think any parent should ever feel bad about pushing because we live in, we live in a society in many ways that encourages mediocrity. And I don't know any person that's content with mediocrity. I've never met a person that says, "Well, you know what? I just feel really good about half-assing it today." <laughs> I don't. Know. I, I don't think it's more of <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think it's more of the human spirit or the human condition. I feel like we're built to achieve in some capacity.
1: I'm not and sure I, I agree th- with you on that point because I. <laughs> I have seen people content with mediocrity. I hate to say that, but uh, that's the case. Well, but so. <laughs> no, I, don't,
0: I don't know, Lisa. I don't know if they're really content. In their heart of hearts, you know, I mean, maybe they appear content, but in their heart of hearts, and everybody has something that they want to achieve. It, it, it might be on a really small level. It might be on a grandiose level. But I... It's still a, it's still something they want to achieve, even if it's getting up and having a certain amount of food that day, or like we're, we're the species doesn't survive. I don't think if we're not made up to move forward. I think we perish if if we're not instinctively made up to move forward. And I know what you mean. You see a lot of lethargy, especially at this point. So I'm 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 with you on that. You see, I I feel like you know seven out of ten people I pass on a daily basis quite possibly may be medicated in some way. You know because the the sure. lethargy is the lethargy is unbelievable. It's like some people are walking around in a cloud. I know what you mean, but I don't think that's their natural state. You know if you really get down to it and. I mean, you were talking to me before the podcast, you've been traveling a lot, you've been doing this, you you know, you you promoted the tennis, you pushed the tennis, you, you're you in your own way, just like me in my own way, you're a go-getter, you you want to get some stuff done, you don't just wake up and be like, hey, you know, I, I think I want to watch like 10 soap operas in a row or 10 evening movie channel movies in a row. You're wanting to get stuff done and because you're awake and you're alive and and I feel like in our natural state, I feel like that's that's how we are.
1: So I I don't know. Let me know. ask you. Can can I ask you a question? I I want to interrupt because I'm well, I and I hate to interrupt you because I like to hear you talk. But you know you you keep talking about the the tough parent and the tough competitor and you know having that um, that drive to you know and that hunger. And it, it's interesting to me that in the last, what, maybe five, ten years, we've had this prevalence and, of professionals, books, websites about training mental toughness. And it's, it seems to me that that was either something you had or you didn't have when i was coming up and you know later when you were coming up i mean the kids that were tough mentally were tough mentally i mean they just were and the kids that weren't you know weren't out there trying to be tough mentally they were finding something where where their personality would help them succeed what are your thoughts on on the books the professionals the the websites well, I, I spent
0: probably well, almost two years down in Orlando, and training with a guy named Pat Etchaberry. That was he, he's trained the people across the sports spectrum, and at that time he was he was part of a group called LGE, which was Jim Lair, which is one of those supposed mental toughness mm-hmm. guys, uh, Jack Gropple, which I'm still not sure what he does, um, and he's some way affiliated with. I, I don't really know. I don't really know. And and then Pat. Now, mind you, when I was down there, Pat and I would talk at least two or three times a week in his office because I would see it was split in two halves. So Pat had one half, which was the gym, the workout area, and the massage rooms, all the physicality. And then the other half was the supposed mental room with administrative staff and 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 basically more of a sedentary type of half of a building. And I would go into Pat every, every time we would talk, a couple times a week, two or three times a week, and say, look, I see people coming in the gym all the time. Like, that's, they're, put, they're paying money to come. So the income side of the operation is in the physical training. It's in the gym. It's, they're coming to you because they know you're sincere. They know you're working. They know that they already have their heart in place and their spirit and they want to get better, and you're going to help them do that. Now, that's for real. That's tangible. That's why they pay. I look on the other side of the thing, and I'm like, you know, I see a straggler here, a straggler there walking in. It's completely uninspired. At that time, I think Jim was putting out a book called uh, Stress for Success, and I remember him being in the gym one day, and I'm like, were you drunk when you titled that? Did you have, had you had a few too many toddies? Because, because you're going to go to like corporate America and ask them to stress more and tell them they're going to be successful. And you're selling quote unquote mental toughness. Now, Jim was, he started out at Volatari. And you don't, you don't want to know some of the things when he'd come on, he'd come near the court with Andre or a few of the other guys when we'd be practicing. And he'd start to like delve into this quote-unquote mental toughness, which he basically helped coin and really helped start selling, you know. And a lot of people sell it now. And in my view, Lisa, it's, it's a fraud. It's a fraudulent idea. I'm not saying gems a fraud. I'm saying the idea of mental toughness and that whole deal, of course that half of the building in LGE would be uninspired. When you're on one side and you're watching Jim Harbaugh bench press almost 400 pounds, and you're watching uh, Charles Woodson come in and squat five, 600 pounds, that's real stuff. That's tangible stuff. If that, if, if you've ever had a squat bar on your back with any kind of weight on it, you're do or die at that point. If If you don't have heart and spirit and mental toughness, you're going down. <laughs> so... So somebody whispering in your ear from the sideline, well, we need to be mentally tough now. Go through your routine. Go through this. Woodson would have looked at him like, would you get the hell away from me? I got 600 pounds on my back. Hmm. And when he's playing in a game and he's got guys coming trying to take his head off, if he's got a guy at the sideline saying, well, now, Charles, you got to be mentally tough today. You gotta you gotta go over your routine. You got, he'd be looking at him like, look, I'm gonna get decapitated if I listen to you. So, I hope that answers your question. I've always felt that the whole thing was the whole idea was fraudulent because it, I'm, and and you have guys like Tony Robbins that are actually they as he's aged he's gotten a lot more fundamentally sound with his common sense ideas. You have uh, the guy that I wrote about several times and will write about again, Father Joe in New York. He wasn't promoting ever mental toughness. If he's working with Muhammad Ali and he says, now, Muhammad, you, we, we really need you to concentrate on the couple routines we worked on today. He's like, hey, you know, this guy's about to, he's about to kill me. He'll kill me if he can. So I'm not thinking about mental toughness. I'm thinking about, in my mind, I'm thinking about seeing the outcomes that I want. I'm thinking about getting in touch with my real motivation, with why I'm doing what I'm doing, with all the hard work I've put in, with why I love what I love, with who's dear to me, and and I play for myself, I play for them. What's, What's my inspiration? What's my motivation? And how can I see the outcomes that I want? Now, that's
1: real stuff. But so where did about you develop that stuff? Where Did you develop that stuff just through life experience? Did you develop that stuff because you had a coach that guided you that way or a parent that guided you that way? I think that's the question, you know, because not every kid has that instinctually.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree and 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 you you hit on a couple of ways. Maybe it's a parent, a strong-willed parent. Maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's someone in the family or but the idea at least has to be introduced of look, this is a very rugged pursuit that you're going after. Be it athletics or anything you want to really achieve. It Doesn't matter if it's scholastic, athletic, academic, it doesn't matter. If it's rugged and it takes a lot of work and a lot of patience, yeah, it helps if you have at least one person that can say, look, this is going to take an enormous amount of effort here. Let's get honest about this. To see every day when you wake up and every night before you go to bed, you're going to have to see what you want your body to look like, how fit you want to be, how how you can gain victory, how you can gain an edge, what you do well. And you have to sit with yourself and be very honest and it really helps if you have one or two people that can sit and talk to you, not with some high in the uh, fantasy-filled, you know, uh, monk in a chateau-like structure on the top of the Alps, not something like this, but someone who can talk common sense to you and say, look, how much work did you do today? You know, have you seen what you want? You know, are you... Are you motivated enough? Are you ready to go to work again? Are you going to be able to dig yourself from this fatigue and really come up and say, hey, okay, i got to get the work done today? That kind of common sense, that kind of heart, you know, that kind of spirit. And that doesn't take, you know, a 400-page book telling me about all the synapses in the brain and and all these different things. Because at the end of the day, I don't really know if I can control those synapses. I don't really know if I can control all the electrical... No one's ever figured out the human body fully. They can map the, the – they can do the genome and they can do the DNA all they want. But in my view, we're divine creations. So you nev- no one really knows why the violin makes such beautiful music. But when we go to the symphony, we don't sit there and analyze it and write a 400-page book about it. We sit and we say, oh, my God, that's That's beautiful. And so I think some of it comes from the individual. Like you say, there has to be a certain amount of it. I think some of it comes from the important people in their life, not being afraid to say, hey, look, you know, it's okay to, it's okay to be honest. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to, to not really know, you know, which way you want to go here in terms of, you know, is my forehand stronger? Is my backhand stronger? Am I fast enough? It's okay to have doubt. We work through that. And then let's get to some solutions where we can, you know, kind of get a roadmap to go after the thing.
1: Well, that kind of brings us back full circle to Patricia Jensen. And I asked you about the party that (laughs) that you performed in at the beginning of our hour together. We never got to the party. So can you tell that story? Because I love the story sure 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 and
0: we were i think um i had come from i had just performed i i don't well and i should back up uh, the the reason I, the, the main reason i have a a website is just to list this uh broad spectrum of life experiences because if you listen to one conversation with you and i it's like there's there's a lot of pieces that or to the puzzle, and if you don't have all the pieces, you you don't know what fits where. Point in my life, I had one of the businesses I had was I was promoting a record, a hip-hop uh, single, and a music video, and it was doing very well. The, the single ended up selling uh, full count, like half price, wholesale, and full price. The majority sold full price, but we were looking at in excess of 100,000 copies sold. So wow. when 100,000 copies for me is different than 100,000 copies for Tupac. Because there was one year where... Because, because Tupac made 30 cents a record because he had an, an atrocious deal. I was doing it myself. So if I sold a, a cassette tape, which is what it was back then, and or a little later, a CD, but mostly cassette tapes. And that cassette tape cost me total marketing, materials, packaging, everything, a buck fifty. And I sell it for a value price of like $10. Well, I'm, I'm, my margin is so much better than a person that's signed to a record label. So that, at that point in my life, that was one of the businesses that we were doing. And I had just come from Philadelphia. They had a big tour event. I performed in the Spectrum that the night, a couple of nights before for, like, I think it was maybe 5,000 people in the Spectrum where the 76ers, the, the NBA team used to play before they got their new arena. And so we, we come down to Florida, and we're sitting in Pat's hotel room, and we're just talking about what's going on with me, what's going on with her, what's going on with the boys. Because at that point, I think the boys were coming off the French Open uh, win, uh, and they had their own clothing line with Adidas. And so we're talking, and she's like, hey, you, there's a player party tonight. Do you want to perform? And I was tired, I was, but it was, all t- it was most, supposed to be all tennis people, so I was like, hey, I, that would be great, you know? But I, I did say to her, I said, you know, this is not like your. this is not a tame – Kind of thing here. This is this could get a little you <laughs> could get a little rowdy, you know, because it's not it's not there's there's no there's no quiet please from the umpire and there's no there's no nothing. It's it's a free for all pretty much. So you better get a good seat away from everybody so you can see things, but you don't want to be right in the fray because you know you you never know what can happen. So she she said she was okay with it and we went in and we performed and I, I I both rap and DJ so I was doing that and I had a hype man there to help me with the crowd and he traveled with me pretty much everywhere I went to perform and uh, Malavia was in the front row you had uh Lisa Raymond was a great doubles player she was there and her her partner uh what was her name Samantha she won Australian girl. She won a ton of grand slams. Uh, Luke was there. It It was really a who's who of not only tennis players, but there were NBA guys there. There were NFL guys there. And as those guys go, usually very beautiful flock of women follows. So, and then you had models. You had, you had all kinds of different celebrity type people and everybody was just kind of sitting around having their hors d'oeuvres and we got on stage and we started bumping to the music and they were first surprised it was me and then once once we got everybody going over the next 15 or 20 minutes the place went absolutely berserk so much so much so that they had to lock down the entire place after about an hour and a half to do <laughs> You rowdy tennis
1: players.
0: Well, because because people were coming in off the street because they heard the music, and it was a hard rock cafe overlooking the water, so they were hearing the music, and then they'd look in, and everybody had their hands up, and everybody was dancing, and every the the atmosphere was electric. So, uh, they were coming in off the street, saying, "Hey, I'm going to come into the party." So, what started as fifty to seventy five people. In a capacity, Hard Rock capacity was maybe 200, maybe 250. I mean, we had five, six hundred people up in there, and wow. it was yeah, it was wall to wall. And if you've ever been to to uh, to a show like that, you know. I mean, after midnight, people have some drinks. They're feeling good with the music. Sometimes clothes start flying. Sometimes, all kinds of different things happen. So. <laughs> you, Cass Pat, over there. I think Pat might have left a little early because I I think I don't know if she stayed the entire time. She she was uh she had a great time, but uh, I'm not sure if she made it until like five six in the morning. And we just kept going, and now at about one one thirty we stopped because I thought the show I thought I had given them enough. I thought everybody would you know get something to eat, go their go their separate ways. And we're backstage, and I'm, I'm literally, like, starting, getting ready to get, change my dress and go out and enjoy the people at the party. And Luke comes back. And I was kind of stunned. And he, I mean, he's fired up, and he's, he's got a beautiful girl with him. Uh, I would call it half-clothes. She did have a dress on and some heels, but it, it wasn't, there wasn't much to the dress. And he was, he was fired up. And he was like, you have to, you have to continue like listen out there and they were they were like either saying come back or they were chanting my last name or they he was like listen i said man i'm i'm exhausted we just got here from (laughs) philadelphia We've we've been on stage for almost three hours i'm i'm what do you want what do you want from me and he like he he got right up in my face and he was like suck it up man he was like, what do you think? Like, you think I'm not tired? You think we're not on the road all the time? He's like, what are you doing? Why are you being soft? Suck it up. And that was typical Luke. I mean, it was typical Luke. And I thought about it for like 15 seconds, and I was like, well, I'm not going to turn the guy down because he's damn near 200 pounds, evidently really enjoying himself. And I don't, I don't have the, like, I'd rather just go out and perform, especially if that's what everybody wants. So I wasn't going to get into it with him, like, hey, leave me alone, get out of here, or whatever. Partly, I think, not so much because I was scared, because I knew he was telling the truth. I knew that as an entertainer or a performer, when you have something good going, you don't just stop. You know, you give you give as much as you can give, and whatever your return is, it is, but you give and you give, and then the returns kind of work themselves out, so I knew he was speaking the truth. And that's, I think, more than being scared. But I mean, his eyes were big. He had cookie monster eyes. You know, he was like, hey, you out there. We need you out there. We need for the party to go on. But I was like, I think more than being scared at all, I was just like, hey, he's telling the truth. And he's, he's saying, look, you know, suck it up. Fight through the fatigue, just like in a match. Dig down. Have some heart. Get out here. And so... Once I made up my mind, I think we went until four or five in the morning at least, and uh, well, everybody, yeah, they had they had a great time. I would see people at the tournament because I'd walk around Lipton with Pat and a few other people and check out some different matches and of who I wanted to see. And I'd see people two and three days later, and they'd be like, "Great party, man!" So a couple people would be like, "Hey, can you come to the next stop? <laughs> can you can you do another awesome. party?" At the next-? Yeah, yeah. Can you come over to Europe and do a couple parties over there? And so I think I think part of my inspiration for posting that was, and and it kind of draws us full circle, like you say. You know, Pat instilled in the boys and the girls in the family. She instilled this attitude of, look, whatever it takes, let's get it done. If this is what you want and let's work for it, let's earn it, and let's get it done. And I was just thinking about, you know, because we have a reunion coming up here at KU, and the Jensen's are coming in, and several several other people are coming in within the next couple weeks, you know. And I was thinking about them. I was thinking about seeing them. I was thinking about all these different experiences. And I said, you know what? That experience really boiled down why she would take us in that cargo van, why she would be involved with the McEnroe and Velas matches, why she would get Luke. Luke and Murphy, if, if for some reason they didn't have the money at the time or if for some reason the schedule wasn't right, she found a way. She found a way. Now, she's tough. She doesn't need a book to be tough. Mm-hmm. She's got heart. She's got spirit. She's just tough. She would find ways. Those boys, Luke and Murphy. And Rachel and Rebecca none of them do what they've done without Pat, because Pat's got that spirit. And so that's what was kind of motivating me and inspiring me to tell that story. Because it would have been a great show at one thirty in the morning, but at five in the morning, it was a fantastic show. And I don't get there, <laughs> you know, I don't get there unless he comes back and he's like, "Suck it up, man." go right you know like compete let's go he pushed me he pushed me he's strong-willed you know like we're talking about he pushed me
1: yeah yeah
0: and and i'm grateful for it i didn't particularly like it at the time it was a little uncomfortable but at 5 a.m i sure liked it lisa oh
1: but it had been
0: yeah it had been a great show and we don't get that level of performance if he doesn't push me
1: Well, I think uh let's end on that note because I think that's the message to to take away this from this conversation is you don't get to the level without some pushing, and uh, yeah. in most cases it's it's the parents that are behind the pushing and and it's okay to be that parent as long as it's done with love so uh,
0: well said well said, well said.